When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Always Evolving is brought to you by Cast Centers, which is a company and organization very close to me. I founded Cast Centers over 17 years ago. We provide the best evidence-based practices for therapy mental health, addiction, anytime you're struggling or you have a loved one who is struggling, make sure you go to our website at www.castcenters.com, C-A-S-T centers.com. Give us a call. We're here to help. We'll help you with a free assessment and let's get your mental health on track. We're back at Always Evolving. After three months, I have a guest today who you're going to absolutely love. If you're someone who has struggled with loss or knows people that struggle with loss, I have the guy, David Kessler, with me today who's going to talk to you about the different stages, his new book, Finding Meaning. He has provided me a lot of meaning in my conversations with him, so make sure you stick around. Thanks for joining me, David. Glad to be here with you. You know, I reached out to you initially because uh, I'm writing my next book and I really love what you talk about in regards to grief and loss and being a grief expert. And as we started talking, I started feeling really comfortable opening up to you and sharing different things with you and the wisdom that you have provided me, I really appreciate. It's um, had impact on me today. And it had impact on me when we first talked maybe a few months ago. So, And I also want to make sure people take credit. That's also you being open and ready for that message. I mean, I just happen to be the person that Your had it. But, you know, you were ready and you were open. Yeah, but I, I also your delivery was very good. Like, you didn't tell me what to do. You just gave me really sound advice. And... How did you end up getting into the world of grief? It is, you know, no one is like in third grade going, oh, I want to be a grief expert, grief and death. That's my area when everyone else is choosing things. I had a mother who, a few things to keep in mind. I had a mother who was sick when I was growing up. And then when she was really sick at 13, she ended up going into a hospital At the same time she was in the hospital, she's sick in this hospital. And just talk about things that screw you up. I didn't, like now I know she was dying. But imagine this, her and my father, I'm 13 at the time, mom dying. She brings up and has a monogamy discussion in front of me. 
talk about something that screws you up with relationships. Wait, so, so, uh, fill me in. Like, what? I mean, you can imagine a man and a woman in their marriage yeah. having a monogamy relationship, how challenging that is. Right. And it was around her asking my father, had he been faithful while she has been sick? She was asking him while in the hospital. In the hospital, have you been faithful while I've been sick? Now, my father said, yes, that he has been faithful. And I knew in that moment he was lying. Mm, why? And like, I just could feel it. So when people say, you know, not only are you good at grief, you're good at relationships, all that, because that stuff screws you up and you have to figure your way out of it. Right. Because like, so that was just like the beginning. I mean, my parents were, God bless them both, but they were really screwed up. They had every argument mm. ended with someone's leaving. I had to learn as an adult how to argue in a healthy way without abandonment. I thought abandonment was just what happens in arguments. Why would we come to an agreement when we could pack our bags? So I had this screwed up childhood. Then she is dying. We're in a hotel across the street because it's a few oh, hours. Oh, real quick. So yeah. when, when did she believe your dad that he was faithful? I don't think she did. Okay. I don't think she did either. Got it. I don't think she did either. Okay, so now you're and in the- it's just a screwed up thing for a kid to witness. Yeah. Just to witness, not even like, and then when you add mom's dying, it's a screwed up thing. Yeah. And then we're at this hotel. Someone yells fire. They evacuate the hotel. All of a sudden, we're outside the hotel on the 18th floor. Flames are coming out. Fire trucks pull up and shooting begins. They realize this is an active shooter. It went on for 13 hours, one of the first mass shootings in the mm. U.S., racially driven. And my father, after 13 hours, finally gets us back to the hospital. They killed the shooter. It was like a horrible thing. It was like everything not to do in a shooting. And we get back to the hospital. She dies a few days later. And no one wants to talk about grief. The only thing I heard was be strong. So I am this screwed up kid around relationships, around abandonment, around grief, trauma of a shooting. And I'm like, I either have to figure out some healing or I'm just always going to be damaged. Mm. And that was my quest to find my own healing. And then went on to go to community college. And I heard about this woman, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, that wrote The Stages of Dying. And I'm like, wow, there's a language. Mm. And then after that, you know, really grew into this and have now done six books on grief and loss, one on relationships. And, you know, it's been like my healing and it's such a gift to help other people. So did you, before you entered into working with people in grief, did you end up exploring other, and relationships, other arenas, or were you pretty confident? I did not want to be this guy. For mm. years, I did not want to be this guy. I, um, I ran from it for a long time. Even after my first book came out, my first book came out, a book called The Needs of the Dying, critically did really well, 
I have a career because Mother Teresa and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross praised the first book. And I- How did Mother Teresa get her hands on your book? Mother Teresa, I was um, traveling in India and I went to Calcutta and volunteered in her home for the dying. And then I, at one point, went to uh, her convent there and you would spend time there. And I saw her in mass, like, and she was sick in the time. I would go to mass and she would be there. And then at one point, one of the sisters said, oh, we told mother about you here and that you've written a book and you work with Kubler-Ross. She wants to meet with you. And I'm like, she does. And then met with her. Just this amazing, like, four, nine woman who was so powerful. Wow. And after... You know, we we had a, a lovely time together, and it was like a life-changing moment. She's so remarkable. And then after the book was done, the publisher and my agent said, you need to get it to her for a blurb. And I went, no, that's Mother Teresa. Like, I'm not sending her the book and asking her to do it. And they were like, why don't you just ask? And I went, no. And then it, she became really sick and it was on the news that she was sick. And I was like, see, she's sick. And the next, and this, this all is so crazy. The next thing I know, I said, she's sick, can't do it. I turn on CNN one day, they have her in her hospital bed. She's like, I love looking at books. It's what I do. I love reading. And I'm like, oh my gosh, should I really send her the book? <laughs> and so literally, we sent her the book. And the killer thing is they call, like I get a call, mother says she did it. And she like gave me a quote for the book. And then it was Harper Collins. They said they need it in writing. I know. I'm like, how are we going to do that? And they said, well, have them fax it. And literally, we called the convent, and they're like, we don't have a fax machine. And I told HarperCollins, you got to find a fax machine in India, because it was back then in like 1995. Right. And sure enough, they found a fax machine, and they had messengers do it. And she ended up giving me a quote. And it really, it touched my heart, and it really set me on this amazing career. But to answer your question, after I did that book, I didn't want to do another book on death or grief. I wanted to do, I wrote a proposal for a book on life and no one wanted it. Oh, it's so funny you and say that. finally I had to go, a shoemaker makes shoes. You know, what if this is my destiny? What mm. if I lean into it instead of fight it? And so I finally did. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I don't know a lot about. So she is the woman who wrote a book in 1969 called On Death and Dying. And here's the thing, the same way Betty Ford brought addiction like to the Masses. mass media, she was the person that said, we have to talk about death. And she was on Life Magazine, and she had TV specials back then. And so she wrote these stages of dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So... Over the years, and I was so, I got to know her and we became great friends. And she helped me with the first book. And everyone kept adapting those stages for grief. 
and saying, it's the five stages, you've got to do them in order. And finally, Elizabeth said, will you help me do a book where we adapt them for grief? And so we did a book together called On Grief and Grieving. Uh, so it's it's almost, she recognizes the five steps before you die. Right, the five before stages. Before you leave right. your life. Right. And, and she wanted you to work with her on, let's apply this to grief. To grief. And like literally on page one, on page one, we say they're not linear. Mm-hmm. There's no one right model. Grief is an organic process. Your grief is as unique as your fingerprint. And, you know, that's been one of the challenges for people to realize that, you know, grief isn't an easy five-step, clean, neat process. It's a very messy process. And the other thing about grief is we always think of grief as death, but grief is the loss of relationships. Grief is job loss. In fact, I define grief as a change you didn't want. Mm. Like whenever you get that change you didn't want, the divorce, the breakup, the job loss, the death, it's grief. And in terms of how significant a loss is, have you found that certain types of losses are much more difficult to overcome than others? No, and I always teach people, people always want to know which is the worst loss. You know, is it a divorce where they're alive rejecting you every day mm. on the planet? Or is it your spouse dying after 50 years? Or, or is it, you know, your child dying? I always say the worst loss is yours. Whatever you're going through in the moment, it's your pain. It's your worst loss. We often want to compare it with other people, mm. but I remind people, you don't have a broken mind, you have a broken heart. And to drop into your heart, because that's where the healing is. Mm. So after your first book that was very successful, High Praise, you wanted to write a book about living. And skip the death part. Right. And just, just sort do of the, self-help. And, and be in self-help. And the publisher said we didn't like it. And then I... Did you think it was great at the time? Were you like, this is it? Oh, yeah, my gosh, yeah. Like, I was going to be the new self-help, da-da-da-da, whatever that was. Right, the happy guy. I was going to go from death to, like, (laughs) grief. And then after that, I looked at this proposal, and someone said to me, why don't you really make it about what you've learned from death to apply to love and relationships and trust and all, you know, all the life concepts, but make it from what you know. Mm. And so I rewrote that proposal. No one wanted it. Still Mm. no one wanted it. Then I'm with- Even after being wildly successful with the first book. They wanted me to write, I always say they wanted me to write Death the Sequel. And so there was just no Death the Sequel to write. And then I was in Phoenix with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 100-degree weather going to the Burlington Coat Factory, which is a strange thing. And I told her this proposal was rejected. And she said to me, well, you know, maybe it was missing something. And I went, clearly no one wanted it. And she goes, well, maybe it was missing me. And I went, well, like what? I would have interviewed you. Like what, an interview with you? And she goes, no, maybe we should write it together. Mm. And so that ended up being, and I thought, oh, that's sweet. She's saying that. And then the next day the agent called and like, she wanted to do the book. We adapted it. She reread it. We chatted through it. We changed the proposal. 
It became life lessons. Two experts on death talk about living. Sold like in a week. Mm. So Life Lessons was the second book. So I kind of got it in a different form and it was really wonderful to do that with her. Yeah, you know, I think uh, sometimes there's this uh, misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation around writing a book. You know, and I've had two successful books and similar to you, I wanted to write a book uh, all about being capable. I really think it's a compliment. Right. I think it's a nice word. I, I think it's just a great word. I love the right. word capable. And I spent six months on the proposal and the publisher didn't want it and they didn't like it. And now I'm on a, I haven't announced yet where I'm going with the next book. I know you kind of know the direction, but sometimes you have to just keep creating, creating, creating. And ultimately you end up in the spot that makes the most sense right. instead of just forcing something people don't really want. And that's the thing I think people will look at authors or really anyone in life and go, oh, they've got it made. Right. And literally, I wrote a whole book that never sold. Like I wrote the whole book. Really? Never sold. It's just a book that I go, maybe this is just for me. Maybe I needed to do it. And people, when they go six books, I'm like, yeah. And there's a few proposals that never went anywhere. And there's a book that never, I mean- not all of us have these, you know, just drop dead success. Yeah. And it's like, no, there was like lots of valleys. In What's your world. writing process? First of all, I resist it. I'm not, I actually have taught writing classes, but I'm not like on a Sunday afternoon, I don't want to journal. That's not me. I really believe there's an old saying about um, Rogers and Hammerstein were asked, which came first, the words or the music? Hmm. And their response was the contract. (laughs) And I'm a little like that. I need a contract and a deadline. Mm. And I need a lot of deadlines. And it's a hard process. I don't like doing it. And I also, you know, I'm one of those things that when my friends read my books, they will go, how did you never tell us this? Because I will write something that I'll go, this is just between me and the readers. Like, it's our secret. And I would never say it out loud, but I can do that in writing. Mm. And I'm a believer. I'm also a late night writer. I'm like, if my writing doesn't keep me up at 3 a.m., it's never going to keep you up at 3 a.m. So, and it's also reciprocal. Mm. I'm amazed that like, I can be working, and I'm sure you've had this experience, I can be working on page 29, and it can like, I can just cry through it. And then five years later, I get a letter or an email from someone in Yugoslavia going, I was page 29 and I began, I'm like, me too. How did that happen? But that's the magic of writing. Yeah. And so you have become kind of the grief guy now, right? You've owned it, grief and relationships and a lot of passion spoken to a lot of people you run and more grief around death now because it's really that's sort of really the area that i'm best in why would you say you're best in that area you know it is one of those things where i had to look at what people wanted i did retreats for relationships you know for breakups divorce betrayal Mm, moderately attended And there was always a waiting list and sold out with the ones around death and dying. So I finally realized, you know, that is 
what people seem to want from me and I'm really great at. And, you know, I, I really, I do love the idea that I can help people take their worst moments, a loved one dying, and help them not just go through it, but grow through it and find the post-traumatic growth and not just, you know, the pain of it all. So walk me through the the six stages and kind of give me the, although everyone, it's not linear and everyone's unique and every right. experience is different, kind of the more uh, yeah. typical. So here's the thing that, and here's what made this happen. And we mentioned it earlier. I was at your center and I love seeing it and being there and meeting everyone. You know, I had been this grief expert for years. And one day I get this call and my 21-year-old son had died. And it's as brutal as anyone would think it is. And I canceled everything and I was lost and being a grief expert didn't help me one bit. But what did happen is I had that little voice that was the grief expert and the inner critic that sort of went, well, let's see if everything you've talked about all these years is even true. And I would have these moments where I would go, yep, I'm in denial. The first stage, can't believe he's gone. Yep, I'm in anger, pissed at him, pissed at God, pissed at life. Yep, bargaining, if only I'd done this, if only I tried mm. that. Depression, absolutely. And then when I began to think about acceptance, I was like, it can't, it can't end there. It can't just be, I accept he it. dies and right. I accept it. And one night I'd canceled everything for a few months and I picked up these chapter that I'd written on meaning. And I'd studied Viktor Frankl's work and how he found meaning in the concentration camps. And mm -hmm. I picked it up and went, yeah, like that's going to help. And I threw it down. And then about a week later, I picked it up again and began reading. It's a powerful book. And I was like, you know, meaning might be helpful. Mm. And so I realized in that moment Meaning didn't take away the pain, but it gave it a cushion. And so I began talking to people. How do you find meaning after tragedies? I mean, we all know people who went through enormous tragedies and shut down for the rest of their lives. Or they're on TV winning a sports award, thanking everyone, mm -hmm. like thanking their parents who died. And how did they find that meaning? So I was, and I wanted to sort of unravel that and figure it out. So the first thing I realized is we think of meaning as, oh, you started the 5K run in their honor, or you started a foundation. And I realized meaning is in the moments. Like this moment we're having, mm -hmm. and with everyone listening, this is a meaningful moment. Right. Like someone's listening in pain right now. And we might say something that helps them. That's meaningful. Mm -hmm. So just about naming those moments. And the other thing, people get confused that like when we talk about meaning, they'll go, there was no meaning in a horrible death or a horrible breakup or a horrible COVID death or murder. And I'll go, right. The meaning's not in that. The meaning's in us. What do we do? 
after the tragedy. Mm. Who do we become? And I realized a few things. Meaning was a decision. It really is. Am I going to live again? We all have that. After the breakup, are you going to get back on the horse after the divorce, after the death? And can you find a life that honors that person and honors you? Mm. And consciously make that decision. And that was really powerful. And it's interesting. People start going, that's the sixth stage. And my publisher was like, that's it, the sixth stage. And I'm like, the Kubler-Ross family is not going to allow anyone to <laughs> add a stage. And they're like, let's just ask. And so I'm like, I don't want to ask, as you see. And then I asked, and they, I'm so grateful they allowed it to become the sixth stage. So, because acceptance, like I said, wasn't enough. I wanted more. And I think we're a generation, we just don't want to accept but but I, and I think because you're so in it with the the material, right? but break down denial if, if you could just a little more. Sure. When when death happens, why is there this denial? It is literally denial is such a positive thing in that way. We could not take in the pain of grief in one day, whether it's that horrible mm. divorce, the job loss, your loved one dying. You would be on the floor and you would never get up. And there's this graceful thing called denial that spreads it out over time and gives you that moment of, I can't believe they're gone. Mm. I can't believe they're gone is the denial that helps you keep breathing. So denial is a great thing. And then anger. Anger. First of all, anger gets such a bad rap. Tell me. Well, number one, we are raised with horrible models around anger. So when I, like even on my online grief groups, I will demonstrate anger techniques and people go, I feel unsafe. And I'll go, and we're on Zoom. That's how bad your model was. <laughs> right. And like you're worried and like, <laughs> yeah, I'm you're on traumatized Zoom. and you're I'm on, on Zoom. Just know you're very safe. You could click me off in a second. <laughs> right. So we don't know how to express anger mm. in healthy ways. And I often, you know, I think we have two go-to emotions, sadness or anger. If someone walked in here right now and gave us bad news, mm. you know, someone else might sit in the corner and cry and everyone walks in and goes, oh my gosh, what can we do for you? Right. I go to anger. When you go to anger, people like, hey, step outside, come back and talk to us when you get it together. Anger is pain's bodyguard. Mm. Anger is pain's bodyguard. I'm just expressing my pain through anger, not sadness. But we don't like it. And uh, the funny thing is, one day I was scrolling through social media. And literally, I'm on Facebook. And I see someone puts up a post that says, for every day you smile, you get another day of life. For every day you're angry, you lose a day. I went, oh, that pisses me. Oh, darn, just lost another day. Rats, <laughs> got to switch to Instagram, right? And it's that thing about like, anger's bad, inappropriate. Like, no, it's not. It's a natural response. Yeah, anger's needed. It's a natural, and it's energy. Right. It's fuel. We were talking earlier about Paul Denniston, who does grief yoga. It's like, it's fuel, and use that fuel. Mm. And then bargaining is the what ifs, the 
if onlys. Hmm. I mean, we all have guilt. We all have regret. And here's the thing that people don't realize about guilt. When it comes to grief and death, your mind would always rather feel guilty than helpless. Hmm. You'd rather be obsessed with, oh, if only I had gotten them to another meeting. If only I hadn't, you know, missed the call. If only they had seen another doctor. We're haunted by the if onlys and the what ifs. And I love, I talk about in the book, I love testing them scientifically. Like, you got to be a detective at first. You got to have your guilt. Mm. But let's not live with it. It's okay to put yourself on trial, but it's got to be a fair trial, mm. and you can't throw away the key and leave yourself in there. So it's bargaining, anger. It's denial. Denial. Anger. Anger. Bargaining. bargaining. Depression. And depression <clears throat> is just sadness. But let me ask you, sometimes people stay in depression to the point of uh, it really affecting their life. You know, I've, I've heard some people say if it, if if you lose someone and you stay in depression for uh, a certain period of time, uh, I think I heard like three months, it becomes uh, unhealthy and something needs to change. Like when does a person know when it's... So first of all, I would say you are supposed to be sad when a loved one dies. Right. You are supposed to be depressed. Being depressed is different than clinical depression. Can you explain the difference? Sure. You know, when we talk about depression, someone important to you dying, you should be depressed for a while. Right. I'm someone who's like, pull up a chair, let the depression sit down. You're going to be depressed. That's okay. Hmm. People try to fight the depression. They want to get out of the depression. And you got to allow it. Now, there comes a time, like you say, when you can't function. Like if someone says to me, in grief, uh-huh. my child died, my spouse died, I come home from work Friday afternoon and I crawl into bed and I don't get out to out till Monday morning, I'm like, yep, grief can look like that. Mm-hmm. If you're missing work and you can't get to your job because you're so depressed, then it is clinical. And, and the thing is, the people who can really tell you clinical depression from grief is a psychiatrist. Right. That's who you have to see if you're really worried it's clinical depression. But most of the things that we fear as clinical depression are the depression that you do feel. But, you know, we think like we should be out of things in a week. Mm. And you're not supposed to. You're supposed to have a dark night of your soul. You're supposed to have dark months. It, you know, people ask me, here's the thing. They'll say to me, how long does grief last when someone dies? And I'll say, how long is the person going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead for a long time, you're going to grieve for a long time. It doesn't mean you will always grieve with pain. To me, the goal is to eventually grieve with more love than pain. Mm. But it takes time. And you have to allow those dark nights. So we allow it. It's amazing when you, here's one of the things in this book for the first time in my life, I never thought, I studied buffaloes. Buffaloes sense a storm coming and actually run into the storm. 
And by running into the storm, they minimize the time they're uncomfortable and in pain. Mm. We run from the depression. We run from the grief. We keep the depression and the grief two feet behind us for years. And what I've learned is this, if I could summarize it in a sentence or two, it's this. What we face, well, first of all, let me go to the buffaloes. <laughs> what, we, what we run from pursues us. Uh-huh. And what we face transforms us. Mm. What we run from pursues us. What we face transforms us. Mm. If we can sit with the sadness, it's a different experience. Then quick, get me out of this. I can't feel this way. I've got to be productive. My spouse died, you know, three months ago, but I've got to be back to normal. Your spouse, like, they died forever. You're never going to be that person again. Right. And that brings us to acceptance. And people think there's a big acceptance, but there's a million little ones. And acceptance doesn't mean you are okay or you like the loss. It just means you acknowledge the reality. And acceptance is a really big key to this, but you got to do it in your own time, in your own way. And it's just not fighting with reality. Mm. You know, the truth is, my mother did die. My son did die. It's painful. I'm going to forever miss them. And with meaning, I accept it. It's the reality. I still will miss them, but I still can find joy. I can still find happiness. So That's what is, what's the meaning you found with the two of them? One of the meanings that I found, I think my whole career, is actually about my mother dying and about learning to help other people. But here's one of the things. My son, when he was in kindergarten, like he was of that generation, they all got an award in kindergarten and they all got diplomas. And my younger son, David, was voted the most likely to become a helper. And he would come to my lectures and retreats and he'd bring his girlfriend and he was really proud of my work. Mm. And so when he died, I eventually, after I really experienced so much pain and all that, I went to, I have to accept this reality. And the two meanings I found is he could not be a helper in his life, but through meaning, he can be a helper in his death. Mm. And he can help many people through that book. And the second thing I had to really think about, and I think this is a question for all of us, would he want his death to constrict my work or expand it? Mm. And I think that's a question for all of us after life's tragedies. Is this tragedy, is this setback, is this failure going to make me a smaller person or a bigger person? That's like a huge question in our life. And I think whenever we can opt for the post-traumatic growth, mm. And you got to go through the pain. There's no skipping the pain. But to come out the other side, we become bigger. Our grief doesn't get smaller. We become bigger. Let me, uh, an awkward moment for anyone can be when they go to lunch and there's people they meet and they say, hey, how are you? And they'll say, well, my, you know, my mom died last week. My son died. That's how I, you know, people like all the time are like, hey, how's the boy? Right. And I'm like, well, one's dead. So not good. What are 
because it is awkward. So because awkward. you're just thinking, oh, you know, so a common saying is sorry for your loss. Right. What do you believe is actually compassionate and yeah. helpful? So here's the interesting thing. My website's grief.com. Right. And I can see the analytics behind it. At 3 a.m., it gets the most visits to a page called the best and worst things to say to people in grief because uh -huh. we're grief illiterate. Right. And people are Googling at 3 a.m. what's the best thing and the worst thing to say. So some of the worst things to say are they're in a better place because you know what? Maybe my son is in heaven, but I'd rather have him here with me. Right. So the better place isn't great. Any sentence that begins with at least is mm. not good. At least he died quickly. At least they're not suffering. At least they live to 100. At least is minimizing and dismissing. Oh, you're so right. And it, it, the same applies even to breakups when people Absolutely. say, at least you know now. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just as true with breakups. Right. At least you don't have to deal with their craziness. And yeah, at least you saw the crazy right, now. Right. You're like, whatever. Right. <clears throat> God, that's a good All point. that. The best things are when you just are like, I don't have the words, but I'm here with you. Mm. And it is okay, you know, to say, I, I, you know, thoughts and prayers, especially on social media has become almost right. Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. You know, <laughs> instead to sort of say, oh my gosh, how heartbreaking. And I have, and not to go, oh, I can imagine what that's like, because you can't. But instead to say, I have no clue what that's like, but I'm going to be with you during this breakup, during this divorce. But what if it's someone death. that's more of an acquaintance, you know, like that is yeah. someone you're close to. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's heartbreaking. Mm. It's just heartbreaking to hear. And not try to, here's the thing. We want to fix people in grief. Mm. We want to help get them out of it. And I remind people there's no fixing because they're not broken. Mm. There's no fixing. They're not broken. You got to be with them. Mm. Just be with them. So what are you working towards now? You know, one of the things I have loved is this period of time we're in. I had to move. I was on a 30-city, three-country tour when the pandemic hit. I had to move everything online. Mm. And so now I have an amazing grief group online with hundreds of people for all different types of losses. It's called Tender Hearts. I do it like four times a week. It's great. It translates. And it's great because people who want to be seen can be seen. People who want to turn the camera off and just listen. Let me, how important, because you bring, uh, you're making me think of how important community can be when going through grief. That's what we did is we created community. And here's the thing, and especially like in rural areas, it was hard to find a sibling group or a spouse group or and a spouse group. Do you find that's children. important to, to? Absolutely. Really? And one of the things, and I've always loved groups, and what I love about groups is we find ourselves in each other's stories. Mm. You know, I can be working with you and you can yes, but me, and I get frustrated and you get nowhere and I'm like, okay, you win. You're never going to get better. You're right. But in a group, you'll see someone who's like, just like you. Mm. And then you see them like, oh, they're really beating themselves up with that guilt. Ugh, I'm doing that too. I don't want them to do it, but I, you know, when you learn, and not only do we find our healing, we find our stories in one another, 
we find our healing there. Mm. So I love the group process and I work one-on-one with people and then we have a Friday focus with topics. It's really a cool thing. It's called Tender Hearts. And that's at grief.com. Grief.com. The other thing that's been really great is I used to do most of my trainings for therapists. I would go city to city training therapists because therapists get like very little grief and trauma work. Mm. Like, and people can think they know it until like it walks in the door and a client. And so now I have a, a grief educator program for therapists, coaches, first responders, police, and even people who want to turn their pain into purpose mm. and run groups and stuff. So we do this big grief educator program that's a three-month program, and we do that a couple of times a year. So that's really cool. That's at grief to get on that waiting list. <clears throat> and how important do you think moving the body is with process processing grief? Like- really important. Really important. Like Paul Denniston that I mentioned, he talks about yeah, tell me more about his work. He talked he started grief yoga. Mm. And at first I was like, Greek yogurt? What's that? But <laughs> it's he talks about our emotions need motion. Mm. And I like knew that, like I work with the police department. When I'm working with the police officer who's in grief, I take a walk with them. I don't do face to face. I do shoulder to shoulder. We walk. So there is something important about getting your body moving. And what Paul's done that's amazing is he really like, you got pent up anger, here's to release that. You got guilt, the what ifs, all that. Mm. It's really powerful. And it's not like I'm not a yoga person at all. And it's not like I always say, it's not your mom's yoga. It's sort of really, you can do it in a chair. And it's really about releasing your feelings to come up in grief. So it's remarkable. So I think movement is so powerful. Whenever I do things, I always try to include movement. Are there a lot of different types of ways to resolve grief? You know, like people, like you said, therapists don't have a lot of training in grief and loss. And someone- If they do, they have to seek it out because schools don't always do it. Right, So. But anyone who's struggling, the idea is, oh, just go see a therapist. So if somebody is looking to go to a therapist, because now in psychology today, you can just label anything as an expertise. Correct. You Correct. know, it's everyone's a jack of all trades. Correct. So how do, what are some really good screening methods for making sure you're going to someone right? It's to really ask, what's your experience with grief? What have you learned about grief? Mm. How many clients, what kind of losses have they had? To really ask about it. And, you know, therapists are the first ones to tell you that, like, they needed tools and techniques. Because grief is something that, like, you think, oh, we all know grief, right? And it's like people go, oh, we all know addiction. We all know. No, you don't. Right. There's tools. There's techniques. There's science. And it really makes a difference. Now, the other thing not everyone needs a therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, grief is not an ailment. And a lot of times, here's a weird thing that happens in grief, is you think your spouse, your best friend, is going to be your family, is going to be the person that gets your grief. And they're the ones that tell you to like move on. Right. 
people in grief have been gathering groups since the beginning of time because you want to be with other people who understand it. And like you know, it's actually the same. And I heard this and it really helped me model my group groups that, you know, I remember hearing in program things about, you know, not all meetings are the same and look for meetings with hope. Mm. And it's that thing about, I wanted to create meetings and groups where you really could come as you are with your deep pain and hope was also allowed. And both of those together. So that's important. Like when people are running grief groups to make sure they're trained in how to do that. Cause you can walk into a grief group and walk out more depressed than when you walked in mm. and you don't want that. Mm -hmm. Well, your book, Finding Meaning, The Six Stages of Grief, The Sixth Stage of Grief, I add the S to it because I got to throw in my lisp, uh, is your sixth book. It's out. You have several other books that everyone can check out. I'm sure they're available at Amazon. Everywhere. Everywhere and, books are sold. And grief.com. You can go like it's grief.com forward slash free. Tons of free videos. Lots of stuff on YouTube get help, get support, you know, you can get through this and have an amazing life that honors the person you've lost. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me being my first guest back on yay, Always Evolving. And, and the time we've spent together, it's had a lot of meaning in my own life. So thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, make sure you click to subscribe. Share this with any friends or family that you think would benefit. Make sure to go to grief.com, put it on your bookmarker, give it to friends and family. I'm on those when, Facebook places, the Instagrams, on all Facebook, of that. Facebook, Instagram, David I am Kessler. David Kessler. I am, I am David, David Kessler. Kessler. So till next time, keep it magical.